you're joining us for the first time this morning, for the better part of the past month or so, we've been sitting with the lengthiest section of uninterrupted red letter text in all of the Bible, most famously referred to as Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Takes up three whole chapters of Matthew's gospel account. Clearly, Matthew wants us to grasp something from this teaching of Jesus on a hillside with a mass of people. Um, I don't have a lot of time to get into it this morning, um, but remember, going back to the beginning of this sermon and uh, series and framing it, that Jesus has been announcing the arrival of the kingdom, the king having come to rescue a people for himself, taking back his world from us, so to speak, and establishing his reign over this broken humanity, proclaiming the, the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 4, 23, the good news of the kingdom. And, and he begins by describing the beauty of what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom with a pronouncement of blessings that reverse the, the standards and values of the world, evidencing the standards and values of this countercultural kingdom of heaven. A kingdom so upside down in nature that Jesus says that those who buy in are sure to experience opposition of some sort, maybe even persecution, simply for living in accordance with their citizenship under the reign of heaven's king. This seemingly insignificant countercultural people radically impacting the world around them for the glory of God. Going back to last week, Jesus has come in order to establish for himself a Jeremiah 31 people, a new covenant people established on the basis of the blood that he would eventually pour out at Mount Calvary as we continue through Matthew's gospel account. God's great act of forgiveness, to use the language of Jeremiah 31, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it. Going back to last week, he came to fulfill it by keeping all of its commands, fulfilling all righteousness. He's the lamb without blemish or spot, whose righteousness is credited to sinners like you and me by faith. Jesus came to fulfill the law by dying in our place, the spotless, sinless lamb sacrificed on behalf of sinners, forever satisfying the law's demands against those who would turn to him in faith so that in Christ the fullness of mercy and forgiveness might be ours. Jesus came to fulfill the law by writing it on our hearts so that we might fulfill it as we walk by the power of the indwelling spirit, embedding his will deep within the hearts of his people so that we might show God's character to all the nations of the earth as we live under his reign in response to his everlasting forgiveness. This morning, we're gonna dive deeper into what it means that Jesus would come after our hearts, planting his flag of kingship deep within, bringing forth this kingdom song that sings something far greater than the song of the religious elites, of the scribes and Pharisees. And so with that said, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter five. We'll be in verses 21 through 32 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You're welcome to grab one of those Bibles and, and use it during your time with us this morning. Uh, you can have that Bible if you don't own a Bible or the one that you do own is maybe difficult to track with in terms of its translation. Let me, let me go and pray for us and, and we'll get after this thing. God, I feel incredibly inadequate to sit with these red letter words, the greatest sermon ever preached and to attempt to expound it. There are times when I've thought about incorporating into my notes what Jesus is saying is this and then I've erased those notes many times because I don't feel that they're adequate 
because I'm not sure that they truly capture the essence of what you're trying to say, Jesus. And so I, I pray that you would help this morning. I pray uh, ultimately that the result of our time in this passage this morning and in this series as a whole would not be that we would walk away with a better understanding of things like prayer and fasting, things like anger and lust and how they work in the human heart, only to miss the the beauty and essence of the very first thing that you proclaim in this sermon, namely, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I pray that, that we would not get to the end of this series and fail to find ourselves on our knees in great dependence and humility, dependence upon you, humility in light of, of who you are and, and, and the reality of how far from the glorified versions of ourselves we truly are, that we would, as a result of this series, see the sins in others less and mourn our own sin. That we would less and less look down our noses in pride at others, but rather would find ourselves on our knees, desperate and humble before you, our King. That we would not walk away from this series more full of ourselves, but emptier so that we might actually be able to hunger and thirst for righteousness functionally. That we would not walk away from this series with all the ammunition that we need to insulate ourselves from your heart-piercing demands, uh, but rather that we would be radically changed and that those looking in on this kingdom and its citizenship would be compelled by what they see such that they might give glory to you, our Father, who are in heaven as a result of it. Holy Spirit, I'm desperate for you, apart from your you're moving and working and stirring in our midst. I'm not sure that we walk away with any of those things that I just prayed having come to fruition. And so I pray that you would stir and move powerfully in this room in these moments to come. I pray that you would give me a feeling sense of the very things that I preach. I pray that you would open all of our eyes and our, our ears and our hearts to see and hear and receive all that you have for us this morning. Thank you for gathering your people and those leaning in to explore and listen in on the truth claims of Christianity this morning. And I pray that uh, it would all be to your glory and the joy of your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I'm not sure what your experience is or has been with the Sermon on the Mount up to this point in your life, if, if you've ever read it or if this is a first pass at it or perhaps you have read it and, and you've maybe walked away with some topical thinking on things like anger and lust and divorce and loving your enemies and um, prayer and fasting and so forth and so on. But this morning I think is gonna be a little different uh, and it makes me a little uncomfortable in my own skin, if I'm honest, because uh, I'm the kind of person who really likes to be thorough, who likes to um, take topics and try to make sense of them in the most uh, expansive, comprehensive way that I possibly can. Um, and yet, that's not remotely what I'm gonna do this morning. Something became clear to me last week as I sat in on a weekly preaching primer that I get the privilege of participating in on Wednesday mornings, namely that, there's a danger in taking 
these six paragraphs that we're gonna look at over the course of the next couple of weeks that begin with, you have heard that it was said, and turning those six paragraphs into what becomes primarily a topical sermon series. What's the, what's the quickest and easiest way to derail the soul-penetrating beauty of the Sermon on the Mount? I would argue that it's by turning these six paragraphs into a disjointed half dozen sermons on anger and lust and divorce and so on so that we end up doing exactly what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. Kent Hughes, to come back to a quote from last week, he says, the Pharisees' righteousness was not so great. It was merely external. It focused on the ceremonial. Its man-made rules actually were unconscious attempts to reduce the demands of the law and make it manageable. Those rules insulated them from the law's piercing heart demands. These men were also self-satisfied, he says. A Pharisee could stand on a corner, look at a publican, a tax collector, and say, I thank God that I am not like that man. Jesus was demanding a deeper obedience. The Pharisees saw obedience quantitatively, obedience to myriad little laws, but Jesus saw it qualitatively. The righteousness that Christ demands, he says, is supremely radical. It is immeasurably higher than the rabbi's concept of righteousness. Jesus closes this whole section by saying, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What, what I don't wanna do is to rob us of the soul penetrating power of Jesus's words by giving us myriad little laws on lust and anger and, and so on so that we then end up walking away with all the ammunition that we need to insulate ourselves from the heart piercing demands of the king just like the scribes and Pharisees which is gonna drive you absolutely batty if you're like me and you just wanna know what do I do and not do? Like, just give me the list because what that means is I'm gonna try not to give examples and illustrations beyond what Jesus gives so as not to lose the essence of the greater point Jesus is seeking to make here. Another way to say it, I don't want us to miss the point by ultimately making it about any one of the points, by, by black and whiting the, the topics of anger, lust, et cetera, so that we miss the, the soul-penetrating beauty of, of all of this. So as to make clear that this is not some veiled attempt to sweep difficult topics under the rug and avoid speaking comprehensively to any one of them, here's a, a list of archived sermons. You can go to our website. You can podcast any one of these that address these issues of lust and anger and divorce and loving your enemies and so forth and so on. The beautiful mess series on 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we spent two weeks looking at marriage, divorce, singleness, and sex. The I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said That series, some of the hardest sayings of Jesus. We looked at anger one of those weeks. This very morning's passage, Matthew chapter five. We looked at loving your enemies through Luke chapter six. We looked at waging war on sin through Mark chapter nine, which uses that language of gouging out your eye or uh, cutting off your hand if it causes you to sin. Some of that language that we'll see next Sunday as we move forward into the, the second half of, of these uh, six uh, you have heard it said statements. Jesus is greater, that series uh, on the book of Hebrews. When we got to chapter 13, we spent two weeks on Jesus, the sacrifice empowering savior where we talked about some of the practical implications of Christian living in light of the cross. And so um, you can go check any one of those out. They probably won't be comprehensive either, but more comprehensive than what we're going after uh, this morning and, and next week. So that my aim over the course of these next two sermons as we dive into what you might consider a two-part mini-series within the series, 
It's not to comprehensively address any one of the subject matters that Jesus speaks to any more than Jesus's aim was to comprehensively address any one of these matters. Rather, my aim is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom ruled by a king who would come after our hearts bringing us to our knees in this posture of spiritual poverty that he might bring forth this song that sings to the praise of his glorious grace. As a reminder, um, Matthew has already gone to great lengths by the time we get to chapter five of his gospel account to show us that Jesus is the greater Moses, having to come out, up out of Egypt like Moses, having passed through the waters, not of the Red Sea, but the Jordan River through baptism, having spent not 40 years, but 40 days in the wilderness, ascending a mountain just like Moses, but not to receive the law, rather to expound it. The one who would bring about the liberation of his people, not from Egypt, but the greater shackles of sin and death, so that we shouldn't be surprised to see Jesus bring the law of Moses into his teaching presenting us with the first of six illustrations of the one and same truth, you might say. Jesus has come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. A righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. A kingdom righteousness that, that works from the inside out, exposing our, our heart-level motivations, our heart-level intentions, so that we might walk in the fullness of God's grace and power, more deeply fulfilling the kingdom ethic of love, Love for God and love for neighbor so that the outworking of citizenship in this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming is not simply prohibition. This is a big deal. Jesus didn't come to, to simply steer us clear of the wrong things, but rather it's a kingdom of glad submission, a growing hunger and thirst for the king and the things that embody his good kingdom. He says in verse 21 of chapter five, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. You've heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you. Critical Thing to consider here, Jesus isn't correcting the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures. We talked about that last week, as though the, the Mosaic covenant had no concern with the inner disposition of a person. That's just not true. What Jesus is doing, he's correcting the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious elites of his day, who had established this code of morals and regulations that went far beyond the scriptures, and yet somehow in all of that had managed to miss the law's heart-piercing demands by way of their insulated rules. Jesus is declaring what, what life in the kingdom looks like as we walk in the fullness of what it means, going back to last week, to be this Jeremiah 31, new covenant people of God. It's one thing not to murder. It's an altogether different thing to have a, a, a right and loving attitude toward those who bear the image of God. It's interesting to me, if you, if you go to Ephesians chapter four, the first thing that the apostle Paul says right after telling us not to grieve the Holy Spirit is this, chapter four, verse 31. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from among you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The, the truth is, 
my, my guess would be that most of us are probably gonna make it through the end of this day without murdering someone. Is that pretty safe to say? Like, we're probably gonna have a clean slate by, by the midnight hour, right? The outside of the cup, clean. But what about the inside of the cup? Unrighteous anger rooted in pride. This harbored contempt that belittles the other. The Heidelberg Catechism says this, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, desire of revenge, and that he regards all of these as murder. One way to think about it, 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 it may be the hand that controls the knife, but the tongue is a rudder that steers the whole ship. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says elsewhere. With it, we bless our Lord and Father on the one hand, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. The tongue is a restless evil in that sense. James chapter three says that the anger and contempt that we harbor in our hearts, Jesus is saying, condemns us apart from him. But he doesn't stop there because he's not just exposing the anger within, but calling for something better calling for a spirit of reconciliation with the very ones to whom our anger and contempt are directed, the very objects of our insult, so that Jesus's kingdom is not simply about uprooting anger and contempt. It's a kingdom of God-glorifying neighbor love. He goes on to say in verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, acts of worship are nothing more than pretense if we harbor unresolved feelings of anger and contempt toward others. We prove ourselves to be no different than the scribes and Pharisees. If we direct our attention to religious ceremony, you might say, while allowing our hearts to go unchecked. Jesus won't allow us to, to ignore his kingdom ethic, the kingdom ethic of love. He goes on to say in verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court uh, with him, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Summary statement, don't wait. The longer we, we set aside a spirit of reconciliation, the greater the consequences. The ethic of the kingdom is love, Jesus is saying, and the time is now. So that I think our prayer should be in this moment as we sit with a passage like this, God, save us from ourselves. Save us from our own pride so that we might humbly confess the sin of harbored anger and resentment and move toward the very ones with whom our anger and resentment are directed so that we might move toward the very objects of our insult, of our belittling in a spirit of reconciliation. That's the song of the kingdom. He goes on to say in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body going to hell. In the words of, of one scholar, the lust that leads to adultery will also lead a person to hell. That's strong language, right? 
Again, most of us will probably make it through the day without committing the physical act of adultery, the outside of the cup clean. But, but what about the inside of the cup? What Jesus refers to as heart adultery. Every thought, every word, every deed that doesn't align with God's good design for sex and covenant fidelity puts us into the category, according to Jesus, of adulterer. So that King David was an adulterer long before he slept with Bathsheba. That adulterous relationship, at least on David's part, began with a lustful rooftop gaze. Out of the overflow of the heart, the eye gazes intently, whether the harem is real or digital. And it condemns us apart from Jesus. So that Jesus, again, goes so far as to say that heaven and hell are at stake, using incredibly severe language to make the point, right? What what is Jesus saying in verses 29 and 30? Is he really calling those within earshot to a life of self-mutilation? Like the queen of hearts, off with your hand, like out with your eyes. Is that really what Jesus is doing? What about the heart? What about the inside of the cup? Going back to the previous paragraph, cutting off your hand may prevent you from murder, but will it address the deeply rooted anger within your heart? In Mark chapter seven, the Pharisees were told are causing a ruckus as they like to do with Jesus and and the boys because some of Jesus's disciples are eating with unwashed hands. Jesus's response, Mark chapter seven, verse 20, he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. When you read those verses, you begin to realize that Jesus could have just kept going, right? He didn't have to stop with six, you have heard it was said, but I say to you statements. He could have gone on and on with dozens upon dozens of these statements. These are just a small sample size of what Jesus is getting after here in Matthew chapter five. I don't think Jesus is really advocating for self-mutilation. He's He's making a point as to how serious the issue is. In the words of John Owen, the great Puritan, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But it seems to me that that Jesus is doing something else here as well. Namely, revealing the hopelessness and foolishness of solely dealing with the outside of the cup. Right, we know that the scribes and Pharisees are, they're ferociously committed to cleaning the outside of the cup. Question is, will they go this far? If you're really serious about skin deep morality, if you really want to attempt to make the law manageable, if you really want to insulate yourself from the law's heart-piercing demands, chop off your hand, gouge out your eye, and see in the wake of your self-mutilation that it was the inside of the cup all along. Jesus is committed to getting after the deep root issues that, that within us destroy our relationships, both with him and, and with others. 
Digging beneath the the surface level manifestations of the law to its heart level intent. Exposing our deep poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You can't escape the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount no matter how deep you get into it. So that those who cry out like the publican in Jesus' parable, the kingdom is theirs. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. A God whose kingdom is, is not simply about uprooting lustful intent. It's a kingdom of God-glorifying covenant fidelity and image-bearing honor. That's the song of the kingdom. He goes on to say in verse 31, as a third illustration of this one and same point that he's seeking to make, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What is Jesus doing here? Right, you, you probably think of some, some different topics to go after that might align a little bit better with anger and lust, you would think at first glance, right? What is he doing as he moves from those topics into this topic of divorce and, and remarriage? If you fast forward in Matthew's gospel account, the same book of the Bible to chapter 19, We're told that the Pharisees came up to him, to Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In an effort to test him, the Pharisees asked Jesus what his stance is on on divorce. And Jesus responds, not by taking them back to the law of Moses, interestingly, but rather the story of creation, declaring that that God's intention in the establishment of marriage from the very beginning was was one of God-glorifying, covenant-keeping love, a sacred, holy, inviolable, one-flesh union that no person should separate. The response of the Scribes and Pharisees, continuing on in Matthew 19, they said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Man's hardness of heart, Jesus says, led to a culture of easy divorce, which led to a culture of hardship for both women and children in that context. And so a concession was made in the law of Moses in order to bring restraint into the picture. We'll see it again in verse 31 next, uh, next week, I believe, that, that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth stuff, that's actually a restraining mechanism, subduing the, the retaliatory nature of the human heart. The law of Moses limited divorce to, to certain causes and established the requirement of a certificate so as to do away with the flippancy of such a decision. There's now a process in place bringing some semblance of order to the chaos brought about by man's hardness of heart, Jesus says. By the time Jesus came along, the the scribes and Pharisees, as they were notorious for doing, had managed to make it about the certificate of divorce. That became the focus so that it was was about the question of, did you go through the right checks and balances while allowing the, the motivation for divorce to go unchecked? and thereby ignoring the beauty and weightiness of that sacred one flesh union that God had established in the beginning. Which is why they would use 
the, the language in questioning Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 19, verse nine, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Something very similar to the language we find in this morning's passage, chapter five. And listen to the response of the disciples in the wake of what Jesus says there. Matthew 19, verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Apparently, Jesus' teaching is far more seemingly impossible than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Otherwise, the disciples wouldn't have reacted that way. Coming back to this morning's passage, what is it that makes Jesus' teaching on divorce that much more heart-exposing than that of the scribes and Pharisees, which was the case when he spoke to the issues of anger and lust in the previous paragraphs? Well, he's essentially pushing back on a, on a culture of easy divorce. He's saying that, that we can't go through the process, fill out the right paperwork, and call it good. He's essentially declaring irreconcilable differences and falling out of love with the other to be unacceptable among the many other reasons that we might be inclined to to separate what God has joined together. This diminishing of the beauty of of what God has instituted from the very beginning of creation, the kingdom ethic of covenant-keeping love. Again, Jesus is going after the deep root issues in us that, that destroy our relationships exposing the intentions and and motivations of our heart. I can can say definitively, and particularly sitting in a preaching primer with six other preaching pastors every Wednesday, that most of us in this role, this preaching pastor role, get a little bit uneasy when it's time to preach passages like this. Strangely, Jesus doesn't. He loves us too much to do anything less than bring us to our knees in poverty of spirit, that we might be unbelievably astonished by his grace, that heaven's king would satisfy the heart-piercing demands of the law on behalf of sinners like you and me, filling us with his spirit so that we might sing with our hearts and our lives this kingdom song. And it's a beautiful song, a salt and light kingdom of reconciliation and God glorifying neighbor love. That's the song of the kingdom. A salt and light kingdom of purity that sees and honors the image of God in others. That's the song of the kingdom. A salt and light kingdom of sacred, holy, inviolable, covenant keeping love in which women and children are cared for and protected. That's the song of the kingdom. I don't know where you sit right now, but but this is what runs through my head. That God would be merciful to me, a sinner. That I could be part of a kingdom like that. It's unfathomable. And it's all of grace. I really just wanna get out of the way now so that we can sing to this king and sing of this glorious grace that is the essence of and the hope of the kingdom that Jesus would come and fulfill the law's demands perfectly on our behalf and would would instill this song in our hearts and, and commit himself by the power of his indwelling spirit over the course of the remainder of our lives to helping us sing the song more on tune is unreal.